0: All right, good, morning. good morning. It is wonderful to be back with you again. Uh, we missed you last week and we had a nice time, but it's, it's really great to be back. So uh, very pleased to be with you. Thank, uh, thank you to the elders for my week away. Uh, thank you to Jim Pence, uh, who did a wonderful job. I uh, love listening to him. He's, he's always great and I really enjoyed him. Well, uh, this week, we're going to continue to talk about uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit. This week, the explanation uh, of the Holy Spirit uh, by Peter. But before we get into that, uh, let's ask the Lord uh, to come this morning as we pray. Lord God, we do thank you uh, for sending of the Holy Spirit. Uh, And the ministries of the Holy Spirit are so many. And one of them, Lord, is to open our hearts to, to hear the word uh, to, to illuminate the word for us, Lord, and we pray that you would come this morning, Holy Spirit, and do that for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Well, last week we talked uh, about the event, or two weeks ago, we talked about the event of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and, and we saw that the people had no idea what was going on. They, they, they said, uh, what is this thing that we are seeing here in verse 12? And we saw how they reacted with shock and bewilderment about what they were seeing. What is this that that we're seeing here? And so this week, uh, Peter is going to explain uh, to these people what happened. You know, in the Gospels, uh, Peter has his foot in his mouth uh, more often than out of his mouth and on the ground, right? But uh, all of a sudden, uh, Peter here is the voice of reason. He's the guy that they're all looking to uh, to explain this thing. And and uh, this is the first sermon given, of course, after the Holy Spirit came since the Holy Spirit had just come. And uh, I liken this entire passage to a courtroom scene. Uh, as an ex-lawyer, uh, as you guys know, I kind of think of this as a courtroom scene. And and uh, Peter has a case that he's trying to prove. He wants to prove that Jesus is the Messiah uh, and that uh, God raised him up. And this pouring out of the Holy Spirit uh, is what had to happen. Uh, and, and that's the means of our salvation. And And Jesus' sending of the Holy Spirit authenticates uh, the claims that he is the Messiah and validates the promises that he made before his crucifixion uh, and his resurrection. And uh, as the passage progresses, it's really interesting because the Jews, uh, they go from uh, witnesses to this coming of the Holy Spirit to actually becoming defendants uh, in the murder of Jesus himself. And so we'll see how Peter does this. Uh, He's like a trial lawyer. Uh, doing a closing argument after the presentation of the evidence. And a good trial lawyer is always going to summarize the evidence that you've heard. He's going to explain it point by point, and then he's going to uh, tell you what the evidence means, and then he's going to tell you where the evidence points, and then he's going to ask uh, for a decision. And, and, and Peter does a masterful job here, so we see a few things. He, he's going to give them documentary evidence that the Spirit must come Uh, From the prophet Joel. And then he's going to talk about uh, the eyewitness testimony of the apostles as they testify, uh, Peter in particular, about what he has seen and heard. And Peter explains the theological significance of what happened uh, and so puts them on the horns of the dilemma, asking them uh, to make a decision because the gospel requires a response. And by the time Peter is done, he declares them guilty of the murder of Jesus. And at the same time, he shows them that, that God's grace uh, is enough for, for even them. It's even available to the guilty. And, and they would not have to serve the penalty that was due to them for the crime that they committed uh, if they would only repent and believe. And, and then Peter asked for a decision. And of course, this is still the most important decision that we can ever make. Uh, and we should ask the question in our evangelism, will you repent and believe? Well, uh, Peter's going to start by telling them first what didn't happen, and then he's going to tell them what did happen. So uh, he's explaining to them exactly what was going on because uh, they had no idea in verse 12. And so we'll read the first two verses uh, and see what Peter has to say about what didn't happen. He says, This is Peter taking his stand with the eleven. He raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea, and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words, for these men. Are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. So, what do we have here? We have Peter. He's getting up and he's he's taking his stand uh, with the eleven to make his case that the Holy Spirit came, uh, because that's proof that Jesus is the Messiah and. And Jesus promised in the Gospels that the Holy Spirit would come and that it was necessary first, though, for him to go to the Father because without him going to the Father, he could not send the Holy Spirit to them. And, of course, only the Son of God can make such a claim. Only the Messiah can make such a claim. And, and Peter gets up. He doesn't care if he is mocked or scorned or ridiculed or even if he's going to be asked to suffer the same fate that Jesus suffered, uh, he's got a case to make and he's going to make it. How do we explain this? Uh, This is Peter, uh, who himself uh, denied the Lord Jesus three times after saying, I will die for you, Lord, and yet he denied him three times. And of course, in John chapter 21, Jesus restores him. Uh, but again, Peter is is one of the apostles in, who is in the upper room uh, cowering for fear of arrest uh, and execution himself. And, and the only way we can explain this is that the Holy Spirit has come uh, and Peter is changed and, and he's got a newfound confidence now that he is uh, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And, and so Peter and the disciples are now ready to publicly proclaim who Jesus is. And you'll remember in, in Acts chapter one that that uh, Jesus says that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the Earth. And here's Peter getting up to start that mission. He's doing what Jesus commissioned him to do. He's going to, to be his witness. And, and so Peter gets up and tells them what didn't happen. Uh, these men are not drunk, as you suppose. Remember we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Uh, this was a feast day. And a pious Jew would never be drunk on a feast day in the morning because they, did, they fasted before the morning services were over, and certainly they were not going to be drunk on such an occasion. And, and secondly, uh, these guys were not speaking gibberish like a drunk might speak. They were speaking in known, intelligible languages. So uh, it's, not, it's not that they're drunk, and so Peter tells them, it's not what you're saying. That's not what happened let me tell you what did happen. And so he moves on to talk about what actually happened. And and he goes back to their own Hebrew scriptures uh, to point them uh, and to direct them so that they would know what actually happened. Uh, the Holy Spirit was poured out just as the prophet Joel predicted. And You know, if you're a trial attorney, one of the most brilliant maneuvers that you can make uh, is to use your adversary's documents against them. Uh, If they have some piece of proof in their documents that convicts them, uh, that's really great stuff. And so Peter, uh, what does he do? He takes their own Hebrew scriptures here and he says, look, these are your Hebrew scriptures. This is what uh, says in them what must happen. And so uh, the Hebrew Bible established what Peter is trying to prove, that the Holy Spirit must be poured out uh, in the last days. And so Peter goes on now uh, to quote Joel the prophet in in Joel chapter 2, verses 28 to 32. Uh, This is what it says. This is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind, All your sons and daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, Joel wrote this prophecy about 850 BC or so. And, and Joel saw this event. Uh, what, what happened was that there was a, a locust uh, coming on the land and all the crops had been devoured. And, and Joel saw this event uh, as God's warning them. Uh, this is a time of judgment. Uh, so God is warning them uh, to repent Uh, And ask for forgiveness. And if you do, then the rain will come. uh, And then the crops will be restored. And so uh, Peter picks up on Joel's prophecy. And and he picks up the uh, prophecy beginning in verse 17. Uh, The original, what Joel's prophecy says is after these things. I'm sorry, Joel says uh, after these things. uh, But Peter takes those verses and he says in the last days. Instead of after these things. And so what Peter is saying is that the last days have now begun. Uh, with the inauguration of the coming of the Holy Spirit. uh, He sees this as as well as many of the gospel writers. The last days uh, begin with the coming of the Holy Spirit, and they will end when Jesus comes a second time. That's the end of the last days. And and so the beginning of the last days arrives with the coming of the Holy Spirit, just as Joel prophesied. And this should have been great news for the Jews, because uh, what Joel had promised is being fulfilled. And and you'll notice that there is no limitation on who can receive the Holy Spirit. It can be given to your young men, to your old men, to your, to your young people, uh, your, even ladies and women, uh, sons and daughters, even bond slaves. The Spirit is available to all. And, and that's a wonderful blessing for them. It's a wonderful blessing for us even today. The Holy Spirit is available to all. And then Peter kind of makes a jump. he he talks about the the uh, the sun and the moon and the darkness being uh, turned into blood and 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 so probably what's happening here is that that some of these things may have had reference to what happened at the crucifixion. Uh, we know that the sky turned dark and there was an earthquake, and people arose out of their tombs and walked into the city. Uh, but probably Peter is referencing future events that these celestial things will happen in the future, uh, in the day of the Lord. Uh, And so the day of the Lord, of course, is is a reference to to the judgment that will come uh, when Jesus comes a second time. But but between now and that future date, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And so uh, that's a great blessing. But to the Jews, Lord means Yahweh. And so Peter now has to go on to explain to him that Jesus is Lord and to call on the name of Jesus is to be saved, just like uh, he will say in Acts uh, 4.12 uh, that, that there is no other name uh, under which by men can be saved. And so uh, Jesus is going I mean, Peter's going to go on and do that now. Uh, he, he has already talked now about this promise of the coming of the Holy Spirit, and he's used this documentary evidence to do it. Uh, But, you know, documents are old, and they're kind of crusty sometimes, and and, and they don't have the living uh, excitement and passion of an eyewitness, and so Peter's going to talk about these current events, uh, and he's going to talk about them uh, with passion and power and persuasion that sometimes documentary evidence uh, can lack, and so you have uh, Peter standing up now, and he's going to tell his story, and, you know, when an attorney puts a witness on the stand. Uh, he wants that witness to tell the story with clarity and power and passion and persuasion because he's trying to convince the jury uh, that the case that he's making uh, is true. And, and and Peter, of course, said over and over in Acts that, that they had been witness to miraculous and incredible things over these past three years. And And so Peter's own testimony is powerful and persuasive. And we'll see by the end of the chapter that it's in fact... Very effective as well. And Peter's going to go and and tell Jesus' story uh, in five stages, beginning with Jesus' life and ministry, that's stage one, and then his death in phase two. So let's look at verses 22 and 23. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. So you have Peter starting with Jesus' humanity. Uh, He was a real person. He's from a real town called Nazareth. Uh, He was a man, yes, but he did supernatural things through the power uh, of God, and he was attested and accredited to the Jews by these incredible miracles and signs and wonders that he did uh, in their midst. Uh, And as they well know, so you see that Peter here is not going to let uh, these Jews off the hook because they were there. They saw these things for themselves. And they should have known that Jesus was the Messiah by the works that he did and by the words that he said, but they nailed him to a cross anyway. And so Peter is saying, you are responsible for your actions. But at the same time, Uh, Isn't it amazing that that Jesus was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God? And and over and over again, as we go through the book of Acts, we're going to see uh, this this tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility at the same time. Everything happened just as God planned uh, and, and meant to accomplish His purpose But that doesn't make the Jews any less responsible for what they did. And and they're going to recognize their responsibility for what they did later in the chapter. And and so what these verses do is show us that Jesus really lived and that he did wondrous things and then that Jesus really died. Uh, a A great crime and a great injustice had been committed against Jesus, but it was a necessary crime because without it, there could be no atoning death and there could be no resurrection. And the resurrection uh, is the third stage of how Peter is going to tell Jesus's story. So uh, we'll read verse 24. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Another proof that Jesus is the Messiah is that death could not hold him. Uh, That, of course, has never been said of anyone who has ever lived only, uh, that could only be reserved for the Messiah. Uh, and in, in verse 24, th- this word for agony is actually, it, it means birth pangs. And so what you have is this picture of Jesus emerging from the tomb uh, like a baby would emerge from the womb uh, to this new resurrection life that he has. And it's a rebirth from death to life that Jesus is going, uh, that, that he has had happen to him by virtue of this resurrection. And, and Jesus promised us this same rebirth when we believe that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, we are born again. And one of my favorite verses is uh, John uh, 5, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but he has passed from death into life. And isn't that amazing thing? He's passed from death to life when he believes. So our eternal life has already started. We have eternal life and it's already begun and it's an incredible uh, blessing for us. And, and what Peter is saying is that because Peter was reborn, uh, from, I'm sorry, because Jesus was reborn from death to life, so we have assurance that we can be born from death to life as well. And now, Peter goes on to quote Psalm 16 uh, to prove that that David did not prophesy about himself when he was talking about resurrection. Uh, A resurrection happened, but it was not David's that he was prophesying about. He was prophesying about Jesus' resurrection. So uh, he's going to quote Psalm 16, and we'll read the quote first, and then we'll talk about it, verses 25 through 28. For David says of him, I saw the Lord in my presence, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Up to this point in the reading of the Psalms in the thousand years since David wrote, uh, this Psalm had been applied to David. Uh, People had uh, assumed that, that David was writing about himself, but Peter makes this a messianic psalm by proving that David could not have been writing about himself uh, because he had died and he had not ascended and his body had undergone decay. So uh, let's read Peter's explanation of this, how he makes this a messianic psalm in verses 29 through 32. He says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him an oath, To seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we were all witnesses. So David died and was buried Uh, and they knew where his tomb was and since he died a thousand years ago uh, certainly his body had undergone decay it was dust and ashes uh, in the tomb and so peter says david's not writing about himself Uh, he's writing uh, about somebody else david is a prophet uh, and david foretold what was going to happen and what he's saying is that it's jesus who was raised from the dead that's what he's talking about and so peter says point blank this psalm is not about david as you may have supposed this psalm is about Jesus who was raised up again. And so he goes on then to say that these things did not happen in a corner uh, like, like uh, Paul will say to, to King Agrippa later in Acts. So he's saying we are all witnesses to these things. We all saw these things. And what we have here is prophecy, the prophecy of David, and history, uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all meeting together at this particular moment in time. Uh, And so the Jews are are probably being more and more convicted as Peter talks, but there's still more to Jesus' story. He moves on to the last two stages, uh, Jesus' ascension uh, and his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. So we'll read verses 33 through 36. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven. But he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So Jesus has been resurrected and he's ascended and now he's he's seated, exalted at the right hand of the Father. And No human could occupy this position. This is a position that can only be occupied by the second person of the Trinity. Uh, Jesus's authority is rooted in this exalted position. He's seated there at the right hand, and from here, he's able to pour out the Holy Spirit on the people. Uh, As he promised in John chapter 14, and John chapter 15, and John chapter 16, and And Peter is saying, this is what you people are witnessing at this very moment. Jesus is exalted at the Father's right hand, and he's pouring forth his Holy Spirit uh, from that exalted place. And Jesus' sending of the Holy Spirit to indwell believers is further evidence that he is the Messiah that he claims to be. And so you see Peter just building brick by brick, proving that Jesus is the Messiah that he claims to be. And then to clinch the argument, he uses another Uh, document from from their scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, Psalm 110, uh, again, to show uh, that that David's not talking about himself when he's talking about an ascension. He's talking about Jesus's ascension. Uh, They know, again, they know where David's grave is. And so David has not ascended. It's Jesus who ascended. And it's Jesus who David was referring to when he's writing this psalm, uh, talking about who is ascending into heaven. Uh, It's a messianic psalm. And and so one day, all of Jesus' enemies are going to be uh, his footstools. And so uh, that's what we're going to, to, to talk about now, because these Jews who were listening, uh, you can imagine them getting a little more convicted with every word that, that, uh, that Peter is saying. And, and you can imagine their, their jaws kind of dropping and, and having a big uh-oh uh, in their minds, right? Like we're in big trouble all of a sudden. Uh, I think they were starting to get convicted of the fact that they had made a very very big mistake in crucifying uh, God's Messiah. And, and they were realizing that they were God's enemies and they were the ones who were going to be a footstool uh, for uh, Jesus's feet. And then to hammer the point home, uh, Peter comes at them with an accusation uh, f- uh, after a, a declaration of who Jesus is. So, so the declaration the proof that all these things lead up to uh, is this, that, that God made him both Lord and Christ. And, and what's he saying there? He's not saying that, that God made him Lord and Christ uh, after the resurrection, after he exalted him. He's saying, no, the fact that he was resurrected and uh, ascended and exalted proves uh, that he is uh, the Messiah. Uh, only the Messiah can, can have such things happen. And so Uh, his resurrection proves that he's the Messiah. And so the declaration is this, Jesus is the Messiah. And here's the accusation, you crucified him. How would you like to be in their sandals and and hear that after all of this proof? I imagine they're they're shaking in their boots a little bit uh, at this point in time. And of course they were terrified. What do you do when you realize that you have crucified God's Messiah who had been promised to you uh, throughout the, the Hebrew scriptures? And And so Peter now goes on to explain the theological significance of what happened uh, about Jesus' exaltation and the pouring out of his Holy Spirit. And I think the the point of this is that God offers us salvation, but the gospel requires a response. And so we'll read verses 37 uh, through 41. Now, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and your children, and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about Three thousand souls. I love this little bit because it, it shows what the work of the Holy Spirit is and, and what it does. In John chapter 16, uh, Jesus promised this about the Holy Spirit. He said, when he, the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And that's just what's happening here. The Holy Spirit is convicting them of their sin. Uh, cut to the core Uh, abide Peter's proofs, uh, pierce to the heart, as the uh, the verse says. Uh, But we have to think a minute. You know, Peter is not saying anything here that Jesus didn't say about himself. He said he was the Messiah. They just didn't believe him. So why are they believing him now? Uh, Why are they convicted now? The first thing we need to see is that it's because the Holy Spirit does the work in convicting And it was not God's plan that they be convicted until the point in time that they had done the work that God needed them to do, as heinous as that work was. Um, If the Jews had been convicted uh, of of who Jesus was before the time of the crucifixion, they would not have crucified him. And then there would be no atoning death and there would be no resurrection. And so uh, it, it had to happen the way it happened. And secondly, and because of the first reason, the Holy Spirit was not doing his work in drawing people... To God, because the time was not yet ripe for that. Uh, after Pen- or at Pentecost, at, excuse me, at Pentecost, uh, when the work had been done, when Jesus had risen and been exalted to the right hand of the Father, then the Holy Spirit could be drawn, uh, could could come out and draw people to Himself, so that uh, people could repent uh, and believe and. You know, two of the main ministries of the Holy Spirit is to convict people of their sin and then to draw people uh, to God so that they can repent and believe. And, and even though it's Peter speaking, it's the Holy Spirit who is doing the convicting. And that should be encouragement for us in our evangelism. We speak the words, but the Holy Spirit does the convicting. And so our job is merely to speak God's words, to testify to the truth. Uh, and God, through the Holy Spirit, does this work. Well, you can see that the Holy Spirit is starting to draw them. Uh, If they didn't care, if the Holy Spirit wasn't drawing them, then they wouldn't have asked this question that they asked. Uh, Brethren, what shall we do? Uh, This is God's work. He's convicting, and convicting brings guilt and shame and fear and all these things. Uh, It's a desperate question. And by asking it, uh, these, these people are confessing their sins, and they're acknowledging their helplessness to fix their problem And they're submitting to the apostles' authority uh, to intervene for them, uh, to to show them a way out if there is one, and to deliver them from their guilt. And and so you see how Peter masterfully transforms these people uh, from witnesses of the event to actually being guilty defendants in the murder of Jesus. And, And what does Peter do here? He proclaims the gospel, uh, he shows them their guilt, and now he presses them for a response. He explains why it happens, and yet he still gives them hope and, and when we think about how we're saved, this is how people are saved. The Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. He removes the spiritual blinders from our eyes, and the only thing left for us to do is to repent and believe and and that's really two sides of the same coin. Uh, The word repent is the Greek word metanoia, which means to turn away from something and turn to something else. So turn away from your unbelief in Jesus. Turn to your belief in Jesus. Uh, Be saved. And Peter also exhorts them to be baptized. And, you know, baptism was only required of of Gentile converts to Judaism. So for these guys, these pious Jews, to submit to baptism would be a humiliating thing for them because that was reserved for the outsiders, for the Gentiles, Uh, But to do it would be a sign, an outward sign that that they had repented and believed. Well, upon reading this verse 38, it it sounds like you have to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit. So I want to explore this for for a minute. Now, let's look at this verse. Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Uh, How do we explain this verse? Uh, be baptized and receive the Holy Spirit is not a condition uh, to receiving the Holy Spirit. It's something that we should do after we receive the Holy Spirit. And this is a little bit of a technical, grammatical argument, but I think it's important because I, I want you to see uh, that, that, this is, uh, that baptism, is, baptism is not a condition of receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, in English, we do not have the second person plural. Plural. Like Greek has a second person plural, but we from Texas are all blessed because we have the second person plural, don't you? Don't we? It's all y'all, right? All y'all, second person plural. So uh, we have that here, and so I know you're going to understand uh, this argument. So here's what I want you to see. Uh, repent is plural. So you could say, all y'all repent. That's what Peter is saying. And then your sins may be forgiven is also plural. So it's so that all y'all sins may be forgiven. And then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, also plural. So all y'all will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so here's the translation up to now. All y'all repent so that all y'all's sins may be forgiven, so that all y'all may receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. All right, you with me so far? Now the be baptized part of the verse is in the singular. And so that means it's set off from the rest of the sentence. So each one of you be baptized. So you have the plurals and then the singular apart from it. So the verse could be translated, all y'all repent for the forgiveness of all y'all sins and all y'all receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Then each of you be baptized uh, in the name of Jesus Christ. And so that's what's going on here. That's what, uh, what, what Peter is saying. And, and this is what, in keeping with other teaching by Luke about receiving forgiveness of sins without baptism. And just let me show you a couple of verses. Acts 10.43, of him, all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Luke 24, thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day and that repentance... For the forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And Acts 5:31, uh, he is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And so we see in these verses that forgiveness of sins uh, is granted on the basis of faith alone. There's no requirement of baptism in order to be forgiven. And some uh, some churches teach that you must be baptized to be saved. So this is an important point. Uh, We believe that we are saved by uh, grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, without the need for baptism. Uh, Baptism is an outward sign of your salvation. Uh, and, And that said, I would encourage any of you who have not been baptized to consider being baptized as a public sign that you are aligned with Jesus Christ. Uh, I was baptized as an infant, and my whole family was baptized as infants coming out of the Catholic Church, as we did. Um, About five years ago, we all decided that we wanted to be baptized uh, as adults, as believing adults, and and it was a blessed and wonderful event for us and and so happy that we did it. And so I would encourage you, if you have not been baptized uh, as an adult, as a a believing adult, to consider that. Uh, Okay, so these Jews now, if they repented... They would receive two free gifts, the forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, and the promise was for them and for their children and for those near and for those far away, which probably refers to the dispersion of the Jews that we talked about a couple weeks ago, that there were Jews scattered all over the land, and, and so uh, that was probably who he's referring to. But then we have this interesting phrase, as many uh, as the Lord will call to himself You see how the initiative of salvation is always with God. We cannot save ourselves. Only by God drawing us can we be saved. And and those who respond to God's call are saved. Uh, Peter encourages them all to be saved from this perverse generation. And and God's salvation was available to all of them. And God saved 3,000 of them on that day. But the phrase, those who receive the word implies that there were those others who did not receive the word. It was offered to them and rejected. And that's a sad thing. And and what we see here uh, is is Peter laying out God's entire plans for salvation. Uh, Jesus lived the life that we couldn't live. He died an atoning death for our sins. Uh, They crucified him according to God's predetermined plan about how people will be saved. Uh, But God raised him up again to authenticate his works and his claims about who he was uh, to show that God has the power to defeat death, and so uh, he will defeat death for us too someday. And God resurrected Jesus, returned him to the place of glory that he had before he was born, and he offers us all of us salvation to anyone who will repent and believe, but sadly, not all will accept this gracious invitation. Those who are added to the church are assured of eternal life. And, and so what we see here is that the story of Jesus is historical. Uh, These events actually happened in history, and they have theological significance. They happened for a reason, so that men could be saved. And the gospel, what we're talking about here, is also as relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago when it first happened, because it's the same way that we are saved uh, today as it was back then. Uh, The offer of salvation has been extended to everyone, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a glorious gospel that we preach. It's a majestic God that we serve. And the question is the same today as it ever was. Uh, Will you repent and believe? Well, at the beginning of the day, there were 120 believers. But now, uh, through Peter's preaching, but more importantly, through the power and convicting work of the Holy Spirit, another 3,000 souls had been convicted, uh, had confessed their sins and had been converted uh, to uh, disciples of Jesus Christ. And that's just the beginning of the church. What we'll see uh, is that this is just the beginning and that more and more people, myriads of people will be, will be added uh, to the church over the next several chapters, and next week we'll talk about the effect of receiving the Holy Spirit, but for this week we have to draw out some application points, and there are so many to choose from. I'm gonna to have to limit it to three, uh, like, a, like a good preacher does, right? Three points, that's what we're gonna get here, and so three applications. Uh, recognize the power of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is what gave, who gave a power to Peter's preaching. Uh, We can talk until we're blue in the face, but if the Holy Spirit is not uh, doing the work, then then we will indeed talk until we're blue in the face. The Holy Spirit is the one who makes it happen. The Jews were the most hard-hearted and stiff-necked people around. Uh, They wouldn't believe Jesus, and yet the Holy Spirit softened their hearts and made them receptive to what they would not be receptive to before. And look at the extent of God's grace. It's it's offered to the very people who Peter accuses of crucifying them. Uh, They get God's grace, and so they believed and were saved. Do you have people in your sphere of influence who you think are are too hard-hearted to be saved? Uh, Most of us have people like that in our families. I myself was uh, seemingly too hard-hearted to be saved for many years of my life, uh, but God did an amazing thing to soften my heart. So if God can soften my heart, And if he can soften the hearts of these Jews who are so hard-hearted and stiff-necked, don't give up on anybody that you may be praying for. There's nobody who's beyond God's reach. Anyone's heart can be softened. So don't give up praying for your loved ones. Secondly, God's timing of salvation is perfect. God had to withhold the Holy Spirit and belief to these Jews so that they would execute his plan. And then once they crucified Jesus, then the Holy Spirit could be sent so that they could believe. You may have been praying for a lost one, loved lost one, lost loved one, uh, for a long time, and you don't understand why God has not yet saved them. And it may be uh, that there's a reason in God's great plan that the time is not yet ripe for salvation. Uh, George Mueller, the famous missionary, uh, he planted a whole bunch of schools for orphans and and cared for something like 10,000 or so orphans in his lifetime. He was also very famous for his prayer life. He never once asked for money. He just prayed and the money came for his entire ministry, which lasted well over 50 years. And uh, he was asked once if he really believed that these two men that he had been praying for for over 50 years would actually be saved. And, And he said, do you think God would have kept me praying all these years if he did not intend to save them? He understood that the power is with God. We keep praying, but God is the one who does the saving. Uh, And one of the men was converted shortly before uh, he died. And one of the men was converted shortly after he died. And so we pray and God does the saving in his own timing through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So again, keep praying, don't give up. And finally, there is only one way to be saved. You know that the world hates the exclusivity of our Christian gospel these days, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ. They hate our gospel because we proclaim there's only one way to be saved, and they want to be saved in whatever way they want to be saved. And just like you can't bake a cake without the essential ingredients of sugar and butter and flour, uh, you can't be saved without understanding and accepting the essential ingredients of the gospel. Uh, Peter revealed their guilt of unbelief. They were pierced to the heart. They were cut to the core. And they understood their guilt. We have to explain to people their guilt before a holy God. We're all guilty before this holy God. But then we can show them that God has given this glorious, majestic way out through his son, Jesus Christ. And he came as God in the form of a man and he lived the life that we couldn't live, but they crucified him anyway. The grave could not hold him. So God raised him up and exalted him. Uh, to the right hand of the Father. And and he pours out the Holy Spirit so that we can believe. And and this is the gospel. Peter shows us how to preach it. We don't leave anything out. We don't water it down like so many churches in our culture are doing today for the sake of bringing bodies in the door. We preach the gospel. The Holy Spirit does the work. And if people don't like the gospel, well, then they've come to the wrong church. And so we're going to preach the gospel here. Uh, And and so Peter shows us that that, that's what we do. And, And after we've done it, We demand a response. Uh, Sometimes you preach the gospel and then you let the person get away without saying, do you believe this? Will you believe and repent? Peter shows us uh, that that to preach the gospel means to to put them on the horns of the dilemma and to ask them for a decision at that point in time. And, And then we rely on the Holy Spirit to make it happen. And it's a model that we must follow for there is no other way by which we may be saved. This is all about witnessing Peter has gone out and he's, he's taken his stand and he's going to be a witness. And we are called to do the same. I pray that we would have the courage and that we would follow Jesus, or Peter's model. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you. The sending of the Holy Spirit is, is such a great part of your plan of salvation. And, and when we believe, we get this incredible gift, the forgiveness of sins and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we're just so grateful that, that uh, because... You have drawn us to yourself. And because uh, you you have shown us the beauty of the gospel and you have activated the Holy Spirit to help us to understand our sin and and the need for repentance and belief that we are now saved, Lord. It's a great and glorious gospel. It's a, a majestic, Lord, you're a majestic God who we serve. And Jesus Christ who died for our sins and rose from the dead, we are just so grateful for that incredible atoning work. Lord, we thank you and we just praise you in Jesus' name for what you have done. Amen.